The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Agile Uprising Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Clef, and we're welcoming back Ted Rao for a follow-up discussion on implementing sociocracy. You're the author of a couple of books. You mentioned them in your previous appearance, Many Voices, One Song, 2018, and April this year, Who Decides, Who Decides? And uh, just before we got started, I was telling you, Ted, I grabbed a copy of your book and I read it on my vacation. For some of the listeners, you know, many of our hosts are avid readers. And yes, on vacation, we like to read workbooks. I'm curious, you mentioned you had just started a book, A Guilty Pleasure. A guilty pleasure, yes. It's called Humankind. And basically, hold on, I'm looking up so I don't say anything wrong. There we are. Rutger Bregman seems to be a New York Times bestseller. Um, so, but, and you know, the funny thing is about the story that you just started about reading on vacation. I was, um, somebody brought the book to my attention who wrote me a Facebook message, like a messenger through Facebook and wrote to me, I'm on vacation, I'm reading this book, and I think you would love it. They're the best kind of recommendation. There we go, <laughs> I know. And that's somebody who I really um, uh, admire, so I thought, okay, that comes with a lot of praise, you know? If somebody goes out of their way to send me an email during the vacation <laughs> and telling me that I should read it, so I started reading it, and I was already sold like 20, 20 pages in. Like, it's amazing. The whole point about the book is that it basically points the hypothesis that humans are decent and good and want to be good people. That's how we start out. And then basically, it, it so it reinterprets a lot of things that we know and that people rehash as, see, we're all bad, that's just our nature. And, and basically adds new data and new viewpoints on it and then builds from there. And it's, so I'm like halfway into it and I love it. It's really a page turner for me. All right, it's gone next to my list. So it's it's a play on the word kind, right? Mankind, humankind, yes, yes. and also the innate kindness, which, geez, if you are doom scrolling, you forget that that exists in most places. Right, and that has so much to do also with um, self-organization, right? Because um, so many people say, oh, we can't let people self-manage because we don't trust them, right? They're not going to do this. They're not going to do that. How will we know this? And so on. And that's, that's, and so in, in that book, it also talks about the nocebo effect, right? The opposite of a placebo effect, that if you expect something bad, it will also be bad. And that's such a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we micromanage people, they're going to try and be sneaker, right? If we, if we trust them and give them something meaningful and trust that they will do it, it's more likely it will happen. So it has everything to do with my work, but also just the value set around it, I guess. So that's, that's, um, it's fun to have something that kind of opens the horizon and, and offers more of why do we do what we do, right? What's the, what's the underpinning of it? Your friend who recommended that book, do they know about your, your role in sociocracy for all? Yes. So they already had some of that background. Yes. And so they can connect those dots. Cool. For those who haven't heard the previous podcast, we, we talked a little bit about sociocracy as a system. And we promised to do a follow-up on how to get started. But before we get started with how to get started, remind us what sociocracy means. I mean, we can look it up in the dictionary. We can look it up in Wikipedia. But in a practical sense, what does it mean to Ted and the circles you're in? And we'll get to circles in a minute. The most striking thing to me about it is that it means decentralization. 
so that we put power into small groups, define exactly what it is they're allowed to do, what exactly we are hoping they would do and they what they sign up for, and then we let them do it. In that way, in an organization, you know, starting from a certain size, that means that there will be pretty um, significant decisions made in all kinds of different corners of the organization, kind of independently of each other. And then we create that sense of the whole by making sure certain people are in the room or kind of up in two circles or in two teams so that they each know from each other what's going on. So there are ways to bring it bring um to bring it back together. So it starts kind of with this decentralization, but then also weaving it together again. And then that mixed with the decision making method of consent, where we make sure that no voice can be ignored. So if there's one person that says, hold on, this is not going to work, we all have to stop and listen and try and integrate whatever they bring. So that's kind of the quick and dirty version of describing sociocracy, that decentralization and, and small group empowerment and then um, enforcing listening, basically. Um, and that to me is the high level, high level version of it. I want to circle back in a minute on, on sizes as well as consent. But I want to start with getting started. So many of the listeners to this podcast are in, in agile coaching, agile transformations. And I don't remember if we talked about it, but do you have any, any background in Scrum or agile methodologies as practice? I know about it, of course, and we use some aspects of that because they mesh so well with what we do, kind of an operational level. But I'm not, I've never been part of an official of, of official Scrum team. No. Yeah, so it, it, I don't think that'll, that'll slow us down at all. But, you know, in, in many of, of the leading approaches, um, you need small teams of people close to the problems that are coordinated with other teams. And they go and make decisions because they're closest and most knowledgeable, right? And and so um, this idea of that you just described of, of sociocracy and and decision making resonates a lot when I think about transformations. But I'm I'm curious. Oftentimes, coaches, transformation agents are brought in, and it's not starting from scratch or greenfield, right? It's a retrofit or it's a brownfield, or it's a toxic waste dump. Does it make a difference how you begin to approach getting started? Yeah, totally, because everything everything goes together, right? The whole culture that we set, um, what people assume, and so on. So that's where things get really tricky. Sometimes, actually, to let me own up right away, actually. Sometimes I find retrofits so hard that I think to myself, how about we just start new organizations and just replace them over time? It just seems so hard. So yeah, it does make make a, a lot of a difference, but retrofits are done, have been done, so it's possible. It just requires a lot of commitment for really rethinking what we do, especially this is additional layer that is in the culture, and that is that... Um, well, there's several things, but one, the one where I was going is that if people cannot be absolutely sure that the culture or that the practices are now different, they will still behave like they behaved before. So the, the image that this reminds me of is, you know, when you have a plant that grows in a pot that is too small and you take it out, you know, the roots are still all going to be crumbled up and as if they were in the pot. And that's how some people still operate. You kind of take the the shell away, you know, the hierarchy away and say, now we're self-organized. Now you get to do whatever, you know. But people are still, after decades in this kind of system, you know, including school, like our education and so on, it's all so hierarchical that people are not really moving out of that of their patterns. And on the other hand, very often, actually, especially in companies, it's not atypical that the former leaders will still kind of behave as if they were in that role. So even if then it's some, it can sometimes be that things change on paper and then you need to really prove that you mean it. If you mean I am decentralizing power, that means I will, I, as the former leader might not always get my way. And that's the, yeah. So there's, there's all kinds of facets to it that make retrofits tricky. Yeah, to keep people from being rude. And I'm reminded of a story 
I'm trying to think who, where it came from. It'll bubble up later, but um, there was an organization that did exactly what you described. They pulled people out and they built a new building that was completely separate from home base and they operated as a new entity, right? Ah, Craig Larman, Les, BMW, auto driving cars, right? He was, he was brought in and they're like, yeah, can you transform us? And he's like, not here. What do you mean? I can walk through the building and tell you where the power gradient is by the decorations, the office size, the floor coverings. No, it won't work here. And they're like, okay, what do we need to do? Move. And, and, I, th <laughs> and I think it was effective. So, so I, I think your point that behavior at all levels um, reflects the culture, which, we, which could be the physical environment, and in your analogy, the, the potted plant, right? So, so culture is a big part of it. What else are some table stakes for getting started spinning up a circle? Yeah, there's another thing that might be somewhat familiar to people playing with Agile, and that is just the fact that everybody needs to know how it works. You know, well, in a like we well, in a hierarchy, right? The people on the top at the top need to know how it works and they typically do because that's how they got there they played the game well right and then everything is basically just held in place by coercion but in a self-organized system people are only as empowered as they are if they know how the system works so instead of training your middle management and so on you know like and upwards kind of you need to train everybody so that um yeah because knowledge and skills here yeah, are power and that's the other thing that i always um find missing like for example i had somebody who said oh this is great how can i do this with my team without doing any training <laughs> no, like that's just not gonna happen right because people lack the skills to do this kind of stuff because they've never learned it because they've never been in a situation where they had to self-organize um and that's I mean, although I, I think, you know, that's kind of part of my ideology, I guess, of my assumption that every human being is able to, but that doesn't mean that we've learned it, right? So um, we still need to need to give people a chance to go into that mood. In, in a way, we've all been trained on self um, and what is it called? Learned um, helplessness, right? Yeah. And snapping out of that is so hard. So there's... Um, both the learning kind of in, like just the knowledge of how to do it but also the practice and then knowing and having the hope and the belief that it's for real those kind of are the ingredients that we have to put in place so we typically start with with knowledge right of knowledge and practice so that kind of people with training wheels get a feel for what it's like and then we mess kind of with what I call the plumbing, right? The real, the real power system in, in the organization. And uh, those are kind of the, the big starting points. You mentioned one of the great skills being listening. What are some other things that people need to awaken, dust off, polish to get out of, you know, you described it as learned helplessness. Well, I guess there are two different sides to it. And most of us are a mix of both. One is the people who are kind of bulldozing their way through things, right? They need to be quiet and listen. And in particular, not only listen, but also have the, or acquire the belief that they might not have monopolized the truth right mm -hmm. so there might be things that they might not be seeing that are just as true so that there's a multifaceted kind of truth so not only listen for the sake of listening but really listening with hey what is it that other people are bringing to the table that i might be missing so listen with that curiosity not just listening so that's that side but the other side is that um, learned self and um, helplessness uh, side i guess that is just as problematic actually and that's people who don't make proposals, for example. And in sociocracy, you know, in that consent kind of culture, you need action happens when somebody makes a proposal. 
So those sentences like, oh, somebody should do something about this are not going to help, right? Or what what could we do about this kind of? That's sweet, but it doesn't give us the same level of forward motion as saying, I have a proposal. Here's how we do it. And then you can say yes or no. And that's such a great, um, great spark, I guess, a proposal. But it's also risky from the point of per from the point of view of the person who has to make it, because there are several options of what you could do, and you have to go out on a limb, right? And maybe make a proposal that not everybody loves. Maybe make a proposal that misses a piece, or maybe make make a proposal that's kind of the second favorite for some of the room, and then you have to sit with that, right? And people just don't do it. I don't know. Sometimes, like sometimes, I work with groups, especially groups that have been for a long time in hierarchical systems. Like I worked with a university recently, and it was driving me insane. They would always say things like instead of making a proposal, they would tell me what they would still need to consider, or like this. Then it went in kind of this academic space where we're like, no, just make a proposal. What do you think is an option that is worth proposing? And propose it, please. So. I guess many of us have been burned so often yeah. right, that that we just don't even know how to do it when we're allowed to do it. What does a anti-proposal sound like? <laughs> All the things I don't want to hear? Let's see. And, and, and then we can flip it around. It's like, oh, this is broken. Somebody should do something about it. Is that yes. a proposal in disguise? Mm. Now I think what I'm what I'm so sensitive to are more the things of the pattern of I mean yeah somebody should do something but that's already actually quite nice because they're already making a statement right it's rather assertive something you know something needs to be done about this okay. yay great but how about um, wait a second something like yeah I just you know I just wonder if this and that could also be important like, like okay I don't know it's kind of it kind of leads us on a tangent you know of like yeah we could also look at that oh and I also wonder about this like what about this you know like like tell me like for example if somebody says um this and that needs to be considered ah okay now I know what you mean you know but these kind of fuzzy kind of um airy things i have a hard time pinning those to the ground and then of course that's a matter of skills i guess right because if you have a good facilitator they can work with that right they can kind of try and pin that person down a little bit of like tell me more you know is that what you want so would this proposal sound like this and so on like basically with the the loop of reflective listening and kind of bringing it back to the person of, is that what you're proposing? You can make your way to a proposal, but if the facilitator is also in on it, then nothing happens. How do you define the, the space in which this circle operates in? What, what are the boundaries of their proposal and decision-making? Do you set that clearly up before you even get started? Yeah, and that is, so when a circle is formed, they have to have an aim and a domain. Okay. The aim is the description of what they're supposed to do, like putting on a conference, and the domain is everything that they can work with to make that happen. So it might, you know, part of it is the budget. Part of it is also just, for example, are they allowed to post as the organization on social media? Who changes the website? Like, do they have the keys to all the things that they need to, they need to, um, change or effect and so yeah. on and and then the people that are participating in this adventure are they told that they're in this circle suddenly you know so often we as coaches inherit teams that were formed by somebody somewhere it wasn't self-selection wasn't dynamic it was just ted and andy and mary and buddha you're on this team what do we do over there this is your boundaries does sociocracy take a radically different approach? I think I know the answer. I'm leading the witness a little bit. But but how do you how does how does the team form, define the circles, boundaries? How do you deal with conflicts with the adjacent circle that says, no, that's mine? What are some of the, the ways that works out? So and we have to, I think we have to decide which scenario we're playing. Is this an existing, like for example, a team in an existing organization, like where there's already kind of all the all the scaffolding is already in place, or is this kind of a, a, a first cell of something? Good question. I very rarely get the first cell. Okay. So let's do the harder question. Okay. 
so let's see. The question was, um, what do we do with the fact that the humans in the room might not be choice? And they're told last week, <laughs> we are a hierarchy. This week, you're self-organizing. We'll give you the training you go. So ideally, let me just, first of all, say how it's done in this perfect system, you know, like kind of in the ideal sociocratic system, you would have circle membership is by consent. So the person has to consent to being there and the rest has to consent to playing with them in that circle. Uh, that is, of course, very much incompatible with how many organizations are run, right? Where people are just put in a position and then they're there because somebody said they're there. Um, I mean, I guess, and there's here, can I just make it even more complicated? I'm sorry, but it, it, that to me comes up. And that is, well, are these people working there out of choice in the first place? Because that's, you know, if somebody is only there for for the breadwinning, it's also going to be hard to kind of have them identify with a with an aim or with a purpose of something, right? If they don't believe in what the organization is doing as a whole, it's all has a red herringness to it to be in the first place. But let's say they are there because they have at least some affinity with what the organization is about. Let's assume that because otherwise I do not know how to operate. I, I'm not in the business of, you know, basically building building um, socioeconomic um, forces that make people go into organizations that they don't care about. So let's push that to the side. <laughs> and in today's world, with the mobility of the, quote, doers, makers, I don't, I don't think that model lasts very long, right? So let's assume, yes, they're bought in on the overall aim of the organization and, and it's transitioning from, you know, old ways of working to sociocracy or agile team self-management. Let's, let's walk some people through the, the, the steps, the skills, and, and what the on-ramp looks like. Okay, so let's assume this is an existing team or a, a team of teams. And they all know about sociocracy now, and they all have a sense of how this works. And then they need to think about what their structure is. What works in our favor here is that most people have some pride in the work that they do so that they will probably self-select into a role that is very close to what they've already been doing because it's familiar. That's where they have the skills, the experience, and so on. So that is their happy place anyway. So it's not that we have to shuffle everybody into a different position. But what we need to create is is, is uh, the potential for that, right? So that you, you might you might self-nominate yourself into a circle that you would have been in kind of had we just transferred the whole structure kind of, you know, like just draw it in circles basically. Uh, but, but it could also be different. And another thing that happens is that we tend to work more role-based so that you're not spending 40 hours a week in one particular role, but you might actually have a more fine-grained kind of structure where you do several roles, which might actually land you in several circles with like in, in certain functions. Uh, let's see, but yeah, then what we need to do is um, set up a circle structure. Mm -hmm. um, and then again, it's, I'm kind of hesitating because it depends a little bit on the scenario. Who decides that this um, implementation happens? Because often that comes from the top, right? And I think that was your scenario. So let's say it comes from the top. We would probably set up the circle structure with the people who are in power, because how else would you do it? You need to kind of need that old system to legitimize, uh, like to create the legitimacy to um, put the new system in place. And then people are in those teams and there's kind of this heavy lifting moment where you put that original circle structure in place. And from then on, it's fluid kind of. It's a little bit like when you have a board game and you have to start out from a certain position. So you put everybody in the starting position, which might even be your old structure, but then it's from then on people have choice. So they can by consent leave a circle and join a new circle and so on. So then, then you're in that, in that, in that game. What are, what are some of the key roles in sociocracy, in a circle? So there are two kinds of roles. The roles that exist because that's what you need to self-organize. And then there are all the operational roles. I'll get to that in a moment. So um, the standard roles that you kind of need to function is you need 
to be able to have meetings so that you can talk to each other. So you need some sort of facilitation. So facilitator is a role. Um, it is a good idea to have something that we call a leader um, that would just be in charge overall of overseeing operations to make sure everything is done. In a sociocratic system, that's also the person that is connected to your um, next higher circle, so to speak, your parent circle or whatever you might want to call it, um, so that what we do is connected to the whole. So that's the leader position. And leader and facilitator often gets thrown into the same pot, and I, I think it's a very different skill set. So it, it can be that the leader also facilitates, but it doesn't have to be. Um, then you need somebody to type notes. That's kind of benign, but it needs to be done. And then you need that second person. So what we do is to connect us with the next higher circle. As I said, there's the leader that mm -hmm. knows and brings information from the whole to us and kind of says, hey, here's what's happening overall. Therefore, I think what we should do is this, but then it's still decided by consent. Uh, but there's also the other side, and that is to make be absolutely sure that also the wider system, kind of the rest of the organization, hears what's happening for us. We select the second person to be part of our uh, next higher circle so that we don't create a bottleneck in the leader to be the only source of truth that travels between the two um, circles. There, there, are, there are comparisons in most uh, agile frameworks in terms of scaling, um, where there's that need for different groups to communicate bi-directionally is satisfied. I'm curious, is, is there a, a scale limit that anybody's brushed up against for, for circles and more circles and more circles? Is, is there a practical limit to the size of, of a sociocratic organization, team, structure, civilization? I don't think we know that yet. I mean, it is very similar to, let me say, sociocracy is typically used in um, certain spaces and holacracy is typically used um, in, uh, kind of, it's just a little bit of a self-selected difference, I would say. Um, and I think the bigger, well, it depends on how you count. The bigger, bigger enterprise solutions, I think, are, or implementations are in holacracy. And I'm not aware that there's something about size that we know already. What I do notice is that when it becomes very big, um, just how important information flow gets. You know, once you you crash that threshold of 150 people, kind of that's kind of one of those natural thresholds, right? How many people can you possibly know? Yeah. And uh, then it becomes about really being good in communication and also making sure that whatever you do is somewhat self-contained so that you're not constantly dependent on things in 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 parts of the organization that are kind of far away so it has to do with how well is it set up how well are people are communicating and how sticky is that purpose that you have because if you create if that's not strong kind of the culture and the purpose that holds you all together then people start looking at that other department as other you know instead of as us and that can also create a tricky dynamic so we, we talked a little bit earlier about the forming of the circle I'm sure you're familiar with Tuckman's model, whether it's sequences or stages or holds up. But so we, we've reformed this team. We've we put in some roles. Um, we gave them some guidelines on sociocracy, consent proposals, and we'll dive into those in a minute. How does sociocracy address team growth through these stages, right? Forming there's going to be some storming and norming and eventually i assume the team the circle can say we're done let's adjourn does sociocracy bring that into account that that the human element of team formation and the stages teams typically go through well i think those are the things that are kind of up to choice they kind of are related to um to how you fill it with life so a typical way, like let's say a circle decided to form a set, a sub-circle, kind of let's go from kind of the very common kind of scenario. I'm just going to walk us through that. So a circle forms a sub-circle. Um, let's say two or three of the people say, hey, I want to be on that sub-team too, because that's really what I want to focus on. But I'm not going to leave this circle yet, but I want to be part of that uh, new circle. 
So they form, but they also need some fresh blood, right? So they either hire or recruit in some other way internally or whatever. Um, let's say they now have five people in that sub circle. They've received their aim and domain that they've consented to when the circle was um, formed. And now they're in charge of something, right? And let's say just for the fun of it, that this is something that is somewhat newish for the organization. They kind of have the Wild West situation, okay? So they now have like this new kind of event or this new project or this new thing that they do, whatever it might be, kind of. So now in that domain, they are completely free, right? And that is very close to that storming phase, right? Of Because the interesting thing about a sociocratic system is Depends a little bit on which school you belong to, but here's my interpretation of it. If you own the domain, that means those five people are now decision makers in the domain. They just get to do, get to do stuff. And everything is allowed until it's not. Because why wouldn't it, right? We start from the place of everybody just gets to do things until there's some sort of policy that, that um, builds constraints. And as we all know, constraints are a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. So then as next thing, the, the group will start building some infrastructure. They will select roles, for example, and they will talk about the first things and, and kind of try and get that unwieldy thing into a little bit more um, an orderly situation. So they will create roles, they will kind of divide up who does what, and they will create some overarching policies that create a little bit of structure in their domain. And maybe that's all they need. And now they, they go do things. And what's interesting about that, actually, what I really like about that going from storming to norming is that you can be as lean as you want to in how much structure you put in place. If those five people can read each other's minds because whatever, you know, they know each other really well, they could even do without roles. They can just go do stuff. Yeah. But if they are you know, on the kind of legalese end of things, they really need to talk about everything before they even lift a finger, then they do that. And that's what I mean, but it depends on how it's filled with life. Sociocracy doesn't necessarily tell you how much detail you have to put in place because you can define roles or not. You can do things outside of roles or you can have the expectation that before you do anything, it has to have a role description be consented by everybody. But we typically are more like in the Wild West situation. You know, we typically do stuff first until something crashes and then we start putting infrastructure in place. Um, the only thing where I tend to not compromise is the process related roles. So, you know, having a, having a clear leader, having a clear facilitator, because if things crash, you need that basic infrastructure to pick yourself up again. Would it be safe to say then, there's really only one rule, decisions are made by consent? Is it as simple and difficult as that? Yeah, it's, I think it's one of those places where both things are true. I, yes, that's, I would say that's true. Um, because for example, if a group decided to make decisions in a group of 50 by consent, and they decide by consent that that's how they're gonna do, they're throwing everything else out. I would still, with a little bit of heartache, but I would still call it sociocratic, actually. <laughs> Though to me, you know, it's like, oh, it's just sad when the decentralization goes away and the focus and so on, because, but anyway, some people would still call it sociocratic. Um, now, of course, the other side of the truth is, um, you know, that's everything is decided by consent. Although I understand what consent is, and there is a little bit of structure that comes with that. It's a little bit like saying, oh, we're just going to have an organization that is based on love or kindness, you know, or respect. That's sweet, but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything in practice, you know. So now if you actually go do something and somebody is upset or something isn't working, then what? Right. So I think we kind of need to hold up our principles, right, and our concrete practices, and both of them are part of the picture. So while you can boil it down to you can consent to whatever you consent to, it, it is useful to kind of have that safety net of, of, the, of the principles. I guess if you, and I sometimes dream about that, actually, I think in a, in a way, sociocracy is a system of training wheels. Because there, and that is kind of also the idea, if you look at spiral dynamics and so on, um, that the more experienced and let me use the word evolved, although I don't like it, a group is or individuals are, the less they can do 
without a lot of, uh, the more they can do with less structure. Yeah. And the cool thing about sociocracy, it's compatible with both, right? You build the structure that you need. And if you can just fly by the seat of your pants, please do it, you know, because that's also fun. Yeah. So there's lots of different types of decision making on teams. We we could flip a coin. It could be random. Heads or tails. We go north or south. We could, <laughs> my favorite paper, scissors, rock, which was always great with the kids, right? You decide where we're going for dinner tonight. People often conflate consensus with consent. Consensus being a murderous process where everybody's got to agree, which usually means it's diluted down. You could also have majority and all these other ways. Tell us more what consent means in practice. How does it work? Consent is it's one of those things that is very easy to explain and very hard to do with all the different variations of it. So uh, it means that decision is made if everybody who has consent rights, which means all the circle members that are in that domain, um, if all of them don't see a reason not to do it. So nobody objects, that means you have consent. The The footnotes to it, I guess, sort of the first level of footnotes, at least, is it means you have to ask, right? You Like not asking is not consent. That's just kind of an assumption, right? So there's the explicit question of, are there any objections? No, okay, that means we're going. Another piece of that is you can only object if you see a reason why the proposal wouldn't work. And not working is defined as it violates what we're doing together. So, and what we're doing together is described in the aim. So there we have that again. The aim is the description of what we do, right? Of like putting on an event or publishing books or whatever. And if something would hold us back from doing that effectively and efficiently somewhat, then we would have to object. And that's actually quite a, quite a cool thing, by the way. I say you would have to object because objections are not a bad thing. But I would say if something is putting your project and like uh, jeopardizing your project, then it is your duty to object because you're there for the aim. That's what you signed up to do. So you would have to object to everything that uh, messes with that. You have an obligation as a circle member to voice your concerns or objections. Silence is not okay. Silence is no objection, no concern. Right. If you have something, please say it. But if you have it, you're you're lying, right? You're yes. holding back. And that creates all kinds of problems. People who don't object, uh, that's really a tricky problem. That's also, by the way, why I personally teach that clear kind of two, two side system. You consent, that means we're co-responsible. This is what we're gonna do now and you're responsible and I'm responsible because we both consent. Or you object. The first outcome means we're moving ahead now. We're now gonna do it, you know. The second outcome, if you object, this takes a little bit of a detour of more talking and there's some great tools and, and strategies around that. But it means we're gonna spend more time on it. To me, that's a binary outcome. If somebody comes to me and says, I don't have an objection, but I am concerned about this or that, you know, that's kind of outside of that system. You're like, no, I'm sorry. Either you voice it real quick and let it go, or I want you to please object. Because the people who say, I don't really object, but I have a concern here and there, they either tell us in three months, ha ha, see, told you so. Right. Or they call you the next morning and said, actually, I, I don't think we should do this. So it's just a drag either way. Just let them object in the first place or let it go. Is the expectation that in the discussion meeting a decision is made? Or because we've, we've worked with people that, that need, need to sleep on it and yeah. come back. Yeah, that of course can happen. And I find it easy to find um, workarounds. Like I, I'm, I'm working with somebody um, who is like that. She just always has to sleep on things. And in the beginning, it kind of annoyed me because I like making decisions and then be done with it. But we found a very simple workaround with her. And that is that if I walk out, of, like we, you know, we give kind of what she would call provisional consent of like, yeah, I consent with the assumption that we'll only publish this tomorrow and I get to sleep on it. And then she can kind of pull the emergency break after having ah. slept on it. But that way I don't have to wait till next meeting, right? Because for me, I'm done until told otherwise. Kind of, I'm the decision is made until I'm told otherwise. And I know that I give it 48 hours before I act on it, but I don't have to spend mental energy on it anymore. So to me, that workaround is great. 
but it's just our unique solution, right? So any other solution that people can find is great, but I really in particular like that one. I like it. So, so assuming that somebody says, I have concerns or objections, how does it work in the, the meeting, in the interaction? How do you work through that? Just pass the baton until it's addressed or does that one person make their case? How does that work? So let's let's look at really quick how we how we get there. So there's a proposal. Everybody gets a chance to hear the proposal and ask their questions. Then everybody gets a chance to respond to the proposal. And then everybody gets a chance to say whether they consent or object. Little side note on that. One can also hate a proposal and still consent. So that's two different questions. What do you think about the proposal? And do you consent or object are two very different questions. So they're worth asking separately. I hate the proposal, but I have no objection. I've I've done that actually. I wrote about that in another blog post. Um, the proposal was to shift to a different pass, like to a cloud-based password system. Early on in the nonprofit, I hated it because I knew it would be a whole layer of chaos to it. There always is, you know. So I was a little pessimistic about it, and I was. It was like in a very high-intensity time. So in my in that second round of quick reactions, I was basically giving a three-minute rant. Okay. And then we came around to like, you know, do we consent to object? And said, yeah, I consent. And the facilitator jumped up of like, what? I thought you'd object. And I said, no, I hate it, but I know we have to do it. It's going to be good for us. Ultimately, it's going to be good. So of course we're going to do it. (laughs) But that confused him. He was not quite not quite seeing the difference until that moment. So it was, I think, really um, helpful for him to see. But also the opposite. Sometimes I, I even make a proposal and then I object to my own proposal. So the, not unheard of at all. <laughs> I'm <laughs> capable of objecting to my own proposals. Like I've done the wildest thing once. I was nominating myself and then ultimately proposing myself because I was facilitating, I think, into a role and then objecting to it right away because i wanted to like i wanted one i knew i was the best candidate for the for the role but i also knew there was one thing that absolutely needed to change so that's how it played out anyway but that was not even our question our question was now if there's an objection what happens the first thing is and that's really important to me that's why i want to start here and going back to it's your obligation your duty to object if somebody objects they object because they care about the circle's aim, right? So they don't object to be a, a pain, right? They object because they care about something. At least that's an assumption to make that that's an um, assumption worth making. Then that means it's not their personal problem. It's something that it's our shared problem because it's our shared aim. Therefore, anything that has negative impact on the aim will be our shared problem right? So we're holding it together. That's the first thing. And we're making an effort to understand what the person is bringing that objects. So that also means the the person who objected has done their duty and they're off the hook now, basically. And we as a team have to have to solve it. So it's not, you know, like, well, if you don't like it, make a better proposal kind of stuff, right? That's, that's not where I'm going with this. Um, and yeah, the kind of taking taking that responsibility off that individual is important to me because it makes it easier to object, which means we hear more what people are thinking, and that's a good thing. So I want to make it easy to object and not burden that person extra. So, but then what happens? So the person um, objects. We have typically three options, and I drill those into facilitators. First option, change the proposal modify something, amend it in some way. You know, if somebody said blue creates a problem, how about red? You know, like whatever um so that's creative thinking and that's typically obvious to people that typically doesn't have to be taught second shorten the term so if somebody says yes just can we do it for three months i know you i know you're absolutely sure it's gonna create you know like create a huge problem how long are you willing to give us two weeks whatever until next meeting you're not like what can we do because I've just seen it over and over and over again that people discuss for hours what would happen <laughs> instead of just trying it out in a safe kind of um, environment. So that's that's a little magic pill, that one. Yeah, I think it is. I, I think the reason they debate is because they don't realize there's an escape hatch. And by creating that term that you described it in Agile, it's the next inspection point. Is it tomorrow, two days, two weeks, et cetera. 
you create that safety. This is not a decision we're making for life. Yeah. The other one is a little bit more advanced. The other one is, but it's going in a similar direction. It's often used in combination, actually. And that is that, so let's say somebody is really worried out about one particular thing. We have to ask ourselves, okay, how will we know this particular thing will happen? What do I need to measure, track, monitor, survey? What do I need to do so I can find out? So as soon as your thing happens, we pull the emergency brake instantly, or we do whatever we define we would do, you know? So that's another another really smart way of dealing with an objection and get out of that hypothetical space like yeah of of whatever bad thing could happen so especially if people like kind of have a have a worry that they can't really put like put clarity to then i typically go to all right let's try this for two months and let's track what should we track you know (laughs) kind of and the funny thing is about and i find that absolutely fascinating honestly those last two strategies, right? Um, they don't change the proposal right? at all, you know? At so all. we're moving forward, but we're just putting a box around it. So I have a little story about that. I unfortunately don't remember what the objection was, but I remember kind of the, the, the sentiment. So somebody had an objection. I think it was related to a role and somebody in a role, maybe just for the sake of the, the, the explanation let's assume they were asked to be leader of a circle and objected to it worried that they might not be good enough kind of that's a very common one so um first option that we have is um, modify yeah we could modify we could for example i don't know send them on a training give them extra coaching whatever like somehow put them into a better starting position okay the other one is uh we could uh, shorten the term, right? We could say, okay, we know you're really worried about it, but are you willing to give it whatever, three months? And they might say yes then, maybe then it's not so daunting. And then the other one, the third one that I just mentioned, measure the concern is we can ask them, okay, so how how could we how could we notice if it's too much for you? Okay. For example, we could now check in with you every meeting. How's how are you feeling about this? You know, and then and that's the good thing, it actually can turn into something super positive and i've done that with that's the story i wanted to tell so i've done that with somebody integrating it that way basically building kind of a package that would make it um stomachable for them and then actually it was this moment where like at, at night i lay in bed and thought like in a way i didn't really solve their problem i just kind of built a box around it i wonder how they felt about it you know and i really felt bad because like gee maybe they felt completely you know like maybe i was ripping them off i don't know you know so i went and asked say like hey last meeting when we when i was integrating your objection and we did this and that and this and that how did that feel for you like did we, did we really address your concern properly and that person said, oh, it was great. First of all, you really listened. That was great. Second of all, I didn't want to say no to the proposal. So I was glad you gave me an opportunity to say yes. I didn't want to be the naysayer, but I was still worried. So I didn't know what to do, you know? So the way we kind of built the safety net around it made it perfect for me because I wanted to be on the team that says yes. And that gave it the extra little bit of safety that that it needed for me. And now we get to try out and that's great. Yeah, so that was that was a sweet moment for me to see how going back to the book I'm reading, right? The, like people want to contribute. Yeah. They want to be on the team that says yes. They don't want to be the naysayer. And it has this extra um what is it? Wait a second. I guess we're just encouraging them to be in integrity, right? Because there is the push and pull there, right? They have the double bind of, I don't think this is going to work. I don't think this is a good idea, but I want to move forward with my team. And if you integrate it in this way and skillfully, you give them the option to have both. Yeah, that's beautiful. So before we close, what's next? Where does this lead? You talked about the the next level that, that we may get glimpses of when we experience circles, consent, aim, all coming together in a resonant frequency? I think of it as a dance where we, where some of us are somewhat accomplished dancers already, but I think we're all kind of still putting one step next to the other asking, you mean this, like to the right? <laughs> what about my other foot, you know? Hold on, but now I've done these 10 steps, what's next? 
So many of us are still in that stage and it's, and it's not fully flowing yet. And just imagine we're all such good dancers that you can go like, you know, you show up to this other group to dance and you just jump right in because it's clear. It's just become, it's become kind of the shared culture and this shared, this is how we do it. And there might be little things, you know, this other group dances a little faster, dances a little this and that or whatever has this extra thing. But really, it seemed that you could show up, you get it, and you just jump in and go do stuff because it's the doing that's really so important to me. All the process just in place to hold that, right, to make that easy. So, I mean, if we, you know, teach that kind of stuff in schools and it's becoming more and more common that organizations work that way, um, then it's going to be beautiful. I think it's going to be really fun. Are you aware of it being taught in schools? Yes. There are, I mean, that's tiny pockets, but yes, that happens. That happens, that happens. There's actually a documentary about um, sociocratic schools in the Netherlands. Hold on, it's called School Circles. And um, we actually, in Sociocracy for All, we have a book that is going to come out that somebody wrote who's a member. And so we put, put her under contract um, about sociocracy with children because she used sociocracy with, with um, kids in her school. So yeah, I mean, that's when it gets really absolutely exciting for me because that's that's when we can make change at a level that I think we, that would be hard to see for people who've been, you know, like that potted plant, right? For so long, like, and now we're talking about people who soak this up um, when they're young. We might have a podcast in our library about Scrum or Kanban in education. And again, it, was, it, it took root in Europe it's, it's hard to find fertile ground in the U.S. for many reasons, but it's the same approach. <laughs> Everybody isn't forced down the single curriculum and the single syllabus that's one size that fits all. And I'd love to, if you can share a link, we'll get it into the show notes, even if it's pre-production on that book. Well, I want to thank you for your time and thank you for coming back, Ted Rao. Also to our listening audience, thanks for hanging in there. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a review, a rating, leave some comments on iTunes. If it's your first time tuning in, definitely subscribe. Grab the next one. We have a Discord server. You can get through agileuprising.com where you can join the conversation and share your stories. And finally, support from listeners just like you. Help us cover our hosting and production costs. See our show notes for details. You can become a patron. And who knows, we'll send you some fun swag, some stickers. Until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast, signing out.